as uh, Stuart said, we're reading uh, chapter 27, uh, verses 1 to 13, which is probably its in entirety. So, in that day, the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent, Leviathan, the coiling serpent. He will lay the, the monster of the sea. He will slay, I tell you, sorry, the slay the monster of the sea. In that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. I am not hungry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me, I would march against them in battle. I would set them all on fire. Or else let them come to me for refuge. Or, or else let them come to me for refuge. Uh, let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom, and fill the world with the fruit. With fruit. I'm sorry. Has the Lord, has the Lord struck her as He struck down those who struck he, struck her? Uh, has he been killed as those were killed who killed her? By warfare and exile, you contend with her. With fierce blast, he drives her out. And as on a day the east wind blows, by this then will Jacob's guilt be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin, when he makes all the altar stones to be like limestone crushed to pieces. No Asherah poles or incense altars will be left standing. The fortified city stands desolate, an abandoned settlement forsaken like the wilderness. There, there the calves graze, there they lie down. They strip the branches bare. When its twigs are dry, they are broken, and women come and make fires with them. For this is the people without understanding. So their maker has no compassion on them, and their creator shows them no favor. In that day, the Lord will thresh from the, from the flowing Euphrates to the walls of Egypt, and you, Israel, will gather up one by one. And in that day, a great trumpet will sound, those who were perishing in Assyria and those who were exiled in Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. Well, welcome along to Soul Revival tonight. If you don't know me, my name's Stuart. I'm one of the pastors here at Soul Revival and I have the great privilege tonight to open God's word at chapter 27 of Isaiah. And in many ways, chapter 27 is a climax of the book. This is getting exciting because Isaiah has been preaching his message of judgment and mercy, but now we're starting to see how those two things work together and how those who are going to trust in uh, the Lord for deliverance, as Isaiah has been encouraging them to, will be satisfied. So my question for you tonight is, are you satisfied in the Lord? Those of you who have trusted in the Lord, are you satisfied? And if you trust in the Lord tonight, and I'm not assuming that everybody here tonight or everybody online is necessarily a Christian... What I'd like to do is ask two questions. First, to the Christians. If you are satisfied in the Lord, what difference does it make to your life? How does it help you to live your life now as you understand the promises that Isaiah has revealed? 
And if you're not a Christian here tonight, what do you think would be your major question tonight about what you would need to understand in order for you to follow Jesus? Well, I'd love you to to hold on to those two questions tonight as we go through this passage. What difference does Jesus make to your life if you're a Christian? And what is your question if you're not a Christian? What is the thing that you really want answered for you to help to understand what a difference Jesus does make? Well, recently I've been uh, really enjoying our tutorial at, uh, Friday, on Fridays with our Berean interns. We have an internal training program called Berea and we name that after Acts 17 because in Acts 17, Paul goes to the village of Berea and he tells them about Jesus and they were terrific because unlike some of the other places that Paul went to, they tested what he said with the scriptures They decided that Jesus was indeed God and he'd come and died and risen from the dead and so they had great conviction that Jesus was Lord and then they were very competent in using the scriptures to help them to know how to live for Jesus. And so in our Berea program, we've got at the moment about 16 people. We've got a few people at West Ride Online watching tonight and also we've got some people on Friday. Well, in the Friday tutorial this week, we looked at an author that I've um, been rereading recently for the Berea course, and I'm also studying for my PhD that I'm writing at the moment. And this uh, gentleman is a man by the name of Andrew Root. And Andrew has written this really terrific book called Revisiting Relational Youth Ministry. And in this book, he talks about what is it as Christians that we should be doing with our lives. It's a really big question for him. How do we live as Christians? And he makes this really interesting observation. He says that Protestant Christians, we might call ourselves evangelicals, uh, evangelical Christians are very relational people. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought, if you're a Christian here tonight, have you thought of yourself as a very relational person? As I was listening to Trudy and Anthony talk before church and just during the sermon, the, the relationality of what they were talking about was terrific. Just imagine my friend Trudy, who I went to high school with, over in Ethiopia, in the other side of the world, climbing up some path to some village that she's never met the people before, but that's Trudy. She's happy to go and say hello to anyone and make a relationship with anyone. We, and, and you know what? We might not be quite as bold as Trudy to walk up to some gated community in Ethiopia. I know that I might have had second thoughts doing something like that, but when you think about it, we love relationships, don't we? And that's because... As a Christian, we are in relationship with God. And when you become uh, someone who has a relationship with God, you want that to affect your life, don't you? You want to live a life that just lets that relationship pour out of you. And so Andrew says that Christians, particularly evangelical Christians, are very relational people. He also says in his book something interesting. He says we're quite individualistic as Christians. There are a lot of Christians around the world in different... um, uh, different tribes of Christianity that are, that are more corporate in their expression. And sometimes people can grow up in a particular place and say, well, because my whole community is, is of faith, then I'm of faith because I'm part of my community. The difference between Christians in, in what we could call an evangelical framework is those Christians who are basing their uh, Christianity on a personal relationship with Jesus actually see their faith as an individual thing. Okay, see the difference? So some people think, uh, well, here's another example to illustrate. Um, Some people in the Southern Shire go for Cronulla Sharks because they live in the Shire. But then Chris Stevens, who was brought up in shark territory, he tasted the goodness of the sharks. He lived near the shark home ground. 
But he made an individual decision sometime along the line. I think Chris might be listening somewhere in the room. I think he might be up the back. There he is. He made an individual decision to follow the Panthers. Now, if you, he's invited anyone who wants to go to go and watch the, the State of Origin next Wednesday night at his place. I think that's um, okay with, with uh, Ray. Anyway, if it's not Ray, just let me know later. But, you know, when you go around and watch the football with, with, with Chris, you can't escape the fact that Chris actually gets his identity from two things as an individual Panther fan. His individual decision to follow the Panthers has meant that he understands his identity based on the fact that he is not a Shark supporter. I think that would be fair, Chris. Is that correct? Is that part of your identity? He doesn't just go for the Panthers. He's not a Shark supporter, much to my chagrin, because I love the Sharks. But the banter that goes on between me and Chris is really helping him to form part of his identity, because he knows who he is because of what he's not. But he also is an evangelist for the Panthers, I don't understand that, Chris. I'm looking at Chris right now. I can see him up the back there. He's smiling at me, so I can keep going. I don't understand why Chris would want anyone else to follow the Panthers, but he's brought his children up to be Panther supporters. I know. It's very controversial. In the Shire, in the Sutherland Shire. Now, if you're not from the Shire, if you're in Tokyo or West Ride or in Queensland right now online, you might be able to imbibe that in another aspect. There might be another example that you could think of of how sometimes your identity can be formed stronger because of what you're not and also because you want to share who you are. Does that make sense? I am who I'm not and I share what I am. That's what Andrew Root's book talks about in Revisiting Relational, Evangel uh, uh, Relational Youth Ministry. In his book, he says that we, as Christians, use our relationships with Jesus to help us to grow stronger. But when we grow in our strength as a Christian, one of the first answers to my earlier question in the sermon was, what difference does following Jesus make to the life of the Christian? It makes you clear about not only who you are in Christ, but what you're not. Because often you'll find yourself in a situation, as Chris will in shark territory, being a Panther supporter, he will find himself outnumbered sometimes by shark supporters. But that doesn't stop him being who he is. He just he actually helps him with his identity to be surrounded by difference. So Christian uh, people who are in a relationship with Jesus can sometimes see that the first difference that Jesus makes to our lives is that it shows us who we're not. But then because we see people around us who don't know Jesus, we sometimes want to share the good things of Christ with other people. And we're really excited about sharing our faith with people who are different, as Chris does with me regularly. I think Chris sort of secretly hopes that one day I might become a Panthers fan. I don't know, but I, I get that impression from our friendship. It's not going to happen, but, it, well, you never know, it might. But what we've got here in the story of Isaiah, though, is exactly this situation. You've got a man, Isaiah, who is a, is a member of the tribe of Judah, and he's part of a people group who worship God on Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, and Isaiah is actually realising that he's different, not only to the nations around him, like Assyria, Syria, Moab, Philistines, all these other nations around him that support other football teams, so to speak. Not only is he different to those teams, but he's come to the conclusion that he's also different to his tribe, the people of Israel, the true Israel, the, the, the Jews that he has grown up amongst. Because, you see, what's happened is the people of Israel 
have divided and created two kingdoms and the northern tribes have actually started worshipping the gods of other nations and the people of Judah have actually taken upon themselves to put up Asherah poles and idols to other nations as well. And so Isaiah speaks into this world. He's aware of who he's not. He's not like the people around him and he's not like even the people within his tribe. But yet he knows who he is in his relationship with God and that's his safe place. So to answer the question for Christians tonight is what difference does your relationship with Jesus make? Jesus actually has given you a way to be actually able to call God, the king of the universe, father. Isn't it amazing that when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he says, pray like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Do you know Jesus is the first religious teacher in history to ever dare to call God father? It's an intimate relationship and that's why our individual relationships with God are so important to us. But it's also helpful for me to talk like this tonight for people who aren't Christians. Because if you're not a Christian here today, none of this might be making sense yet. But the reason it doesn't make sense is it's only going to make sense for you if you form a relationship with Jesus. So whatever question you have tonight about what, you know, whatever question you have about Jesus and you know what might be helpful in you thinking about following him actually the question is Jesus and the answer is Jesus let me illustrate what I mean by that the key verse in our passage tonight from chapter 27 is in verse 6 and even though Jesus' name is not mentioned in this key verse you're going to see with me tonight that he is actually the topic of this verse See, the way to understand becoming a Christian is you need to understand how to become in a relationship with Jesus. And when he becomes your God, you actually change in your relationships with everyone else too and your identity changes. You know you're not like other people and you know you want to share what you are. Let's have a look at verse 6. In the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will bud and blossom and will fill the whole world with fruit. It's a beautiful verse and a much-cherished verse by many people of faith. But basically here, Israel, the true Israel, uh, descendants of Jacob, are actually promised that one day they will bud again. Israel has been divided into the northern tribes and Judah. They're divided and actually by uh, this stage in the story, the northern tribes have been conquered and all that is left is Judah. And Judah too will be taken off into captivity soon by the Babylonians. But here Isaiah is telling the people that are listening to his message, the ones that are willing to listen, that one day Israel will be reunited as true Israel again. God will form Israel again and it will be some beautiful thing that will be like a a plant or a vine or even a vineyard that is actually not only going to be contained within Israel, but will grow out across the whole world and bear much fruit. But before the fulfilment of this promise, Israel needs to be cleansed of its sin. Now, when we turn to uh, earlier there in uh, verse 1 of chapter 27, have a look with me in verse 1, you will see that all the evil and all that oppose God are described as a great serpent and the great serpent is called the leviathan i love that name leviathan i think it'd be a terrific name for a hardcore band from sweden leviathan you could just hear him i like that i like that word the leviathan here in the scriptures is talking about this ancient serpent 
that, that it's almost like all of God's enemies, all of the evil in the world, all of the injustice is personified in this Leviathan. Imagine that. Imagine all the things that are evil and corrupt in your life, sickness, injustice, decay, all being personified in this Leviathan. Imagine taking even in your own personal experience all the things in your life that are difficult and imagine personifying all the stuff in your life that's hard into one thing. Imagine taking your life and all of ours and all of the injustice in the world, all the evil in the world and putting all of that together in one gigantic monstrous beast. That's what's happening here in verse 1. In that day the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great and powerful sword, the Leviathan. Leviathan, the gliding serpent. Leviathan, the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea. What we have here in verse 1 of chapter 27 is an epic cosmic battle taking place between God himself, who is a warrior, who steps up to defeat the great evil serpent. So what is the Leviathan? Is it just generalised evil? Well, actually, no. It's actually more specific than a generalised evil. It is summarising all of God's enemies. But when we read of the Leviathan here, we actually are drawn to remember the Satan. Satan, who opposes God, is introduced to us at the beginning of the story of the Bible in Genesis. When Adam and Eve are tempted by Satan to eat the fruit off a tree that God said not to eat of, we are reminded of the fact that that Leviathan, Satan, tricked humanity into sin. By eating the fruit of the, the tree that they weren't not to eat of, Adam and Eve fell from their wonderful relationship with God that they had prior to that event and were excluded from the garden. That's at the beginning of the Bible where Satan is introduced. But interestingly, if you go to the back of the Bible in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, you see the end of this great serpent. I'm going to read to you from Revelation 20, verse 1 to 3. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having two keys to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be free for a short time. Now, the story will go on to talk about the ultimate, um, the ultimate uh, destruction of the Satan, the devil. But the Bible is very clear, and also Jesus himself is very clear, that his battle is not against flesh and blood, against other people, but against the powers and the principalities and the, and the Satan himself. And you see that in the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus was ministering amongst the people, he not only healed the sick and controlled the weather, but he also cast demons out of people. And every time he came up against someone who had a demon, Jesus had the authority to cast that demon out of him. And Jesus ultimately will bind the Satan once and for all. God is going to destroy all evil. And the picture that we get here is that Israel will be part of that plan. That's what we're going to see in this passage. The people of Israel will be part of this battle. 
So that's interesting, isn't it? As we consider the question we asked for those of us who are Christians at the beginning. If we, as identifying as Christians following Jesus, know that we are not like some other people, actually we are reminded here that our battle in our lives is not with other people and flesh and blood, but against Satan himself. And Paul picks that up in the book of Ephesians. The whole book of Ephesians is talking about the fact that we need to be remembering that we're in a spiritual battle in our lives. In fact, at the end of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul talks about the fact that we should clothe ourselves daily with the armour of God. Now, the problem for some of us who live in the city of Sydney is that we live in a very materialistic city. And sometimes we forget that we're actually in a spiritual battle and that there is actually a spiritual world because we're obsessed with the material and we're used to looking for solutions to problems in the material things of this world. And here we're actually reminded that actually Satan is real, the devil is real, and he is opposed to God's people. But here in Isaiah chapter 27, we're given the promise that God is going to defeat Satan and we are partnering with him in that battle. What does that look like? Well, to understand that, I want to go back further again, back into Genesis again. Have a look on the screen. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this is what we read. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That is actually the first prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus will come as a seed of the woman, Eve, In other words, Jesus will be a human being. But Jesus is also fully God. So as he's fully God and fully human, he will one day crush the work of Satan and he will defeat Satan. And God will defeat the Leviathan and there will be peace. Now, in Isaiah, there are two prominent poems. Two poems. One in chapter 5 and one in chapter 27 that we've just read. In chapter 5, there is a description of this uh, righteous God destroying evil, but also judging human beings who are part of that evil. This is important. Just as God is calling the people of Israel to partner with him in the battle against Satan, he's warning us not to be found on the other side. And in the poem in chapter 5, in verses 2 to 4, we see that the result of not following God's way is like bad fruit of an orchard the barrenness of a life spent not following God despite all the good things we can do outside of God the poem tells us that the only things that will last into eternity are the things that are spiritual that we can achieve as we partner with God and so that is symbolized there by no rain in verse 6 also in chapter 5 This beautiful vineyard that's described in the poem has become run down with bad fruit and no rain. It's been abandoned, the wall is removed, there are now thorns and thistles and it's trampled over and overrun. So you get this picture of the people of Israel are like a vine that has died and withered. And that's what God is going to judge. Because the people of Israel were supposed to bear fruit that the nations could come to and be satisfied. But here in chapter 27 we get a different picture. Verse 6 that we've already read talks about a new vineyard with good fruit in verse 6. In verse 3 it talks about the fact that there is rain that will rain on the vineyard and in verse 3 also this vineyard is guarded so nobody can come in. There are no thorns, verse 4, 
And it actually, in verse 6, does the opposite of the chapter 5 vineyard. It grows outside its walls. In fact, chapter 7 talks about the fact that this new vineyard that God is planting, this new vine, is going to grow across the whole world. It's a beautiful song of triumph. A, few, a fruitful vineyard in, in um, Isaiah 27, verse 6. The first vineyard was invaded by negativity and evil and was killed. But this new vineyard will, will actually upturn that and the vine itself will grow out and invade into the whole world. And this time, this good invasion will take place because God's plan is that this vine will embrace all the nations. It's wonderful we had an opportunity to talk about Ethiopia tonight because Ethiopia, from our point of view, seems like a long way away. Wow, the vine stretched a long way away, but actually nothing could be further from the truth. Ethiopia is actually pretty close to Jerusalem, actually. It's not that far away. In fact, the Queen of Sheba from Ethiopia visited Solomon. She could travel quite easily from Ethiopia to Israel. It's actually our perspective that's wrong. The vine that has grown up in chapter 27 has come all the way to Australia. That's incredible, isn't it? It's stretched around the whole world. This second invasion is a positive thing. And it was promised to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, when God promised that through him, blessing would go into the whole earth. But what has to happen before this blessing is a judgment. And briefly, I want to mention that in verses 7 to 9 which we heard read tonight, that has the Lord struck her? He has struck down those who struck her. He, uh, has she been killed as those who killed her? By warfare and exile, you contend with her. See, we know, don't we, that the Assyrians came and judged the people of Israel, the northern tribes, and then the Babylonians came in judgment and took away the people of Judah into exile. But in verse 9, there is a promise that this one day, this cleansing of Israel will finish. In verse 9, by this we then will know Jacob's guilt will be atoned for and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. Someone or something is going to come and atone for the sin of the people of Israel. Even though they're judged, there is hope that one will come, the serpent crusher, who will kill the Leviathan. Now when Jesus was on the cross... It's interesting, isn't it, that the Leviathan did indeed strike Jesus' heel, just like Genesis 3 predicted. Jesus died. That day, the sky went dark. You can just imagine Satan's glee as the Son of God hung on a tree. The Satan who tempted the first human being to fall because of the fruit on a tree was now seeing what must have looked to him to be his ultimate victory as the son of God, the son of man, hung on a tree. But you know, Jesus wasn't a victim. He was a warrior. He is the God of Isaiah 27, who has come to earth to put to death the great serpent. And he did that by rising from the dead three days after he died. What difference does that make to you as a Christian? If you are a Christian, you have been forgiven for everything that you have ever done or are doing now or will ever do in the future that is wrong. Jesus' death on the cross is powerful enough to take away your guilt. And if you're not a Christian tonight and you're wondering why would you follow Jesus, the Bible says time and time again, 
that a good reason to follow Jesus is you can have a restored relationship with God no matter what you've done. No matter what sin you have done, no matter what bad things you've said or done, you can be forgiven by the act of Jesus on the cross, which was like a death blow to Satan. However, God in his wisdom, while he atoned for our sin through Jesus on the cross, has left us on this place without the final destruction and judgment of the Satan, where he'll be thrown into the lake of fire, that he'll be his punishment forever. Our sin has been removed. However, we're still on this earth. What does that mean for us now? Well, if you're not a Christian, can I encourage you to think about becoming a Christian? If you're not a Christian tonight, can I encourage you to think about trusting in Jesus? And it's really simple to actually become a Christian. It's actually really, really simple. And here I'm going to promote my identity as a Christian, just like Chris promotes his great identity as a Panthers fan. You can become a Panthers fan if you just go down and watch the team and put on the jersey. You can clothe yourself with Christ if you humbly admit that you need his help. If you know that you can't help yourself, that one day the Leviathan is waiting for you, that one day, that day when your own death is going to overwhelm you, you can't help yourself. And if you are not found in Christ that day, you have no hope at the moment of your death. However, the Bible promises us that if we reach out in faith now and trust in Jesus before it's too late, and we can have our sins forgiven by that great work of Jesus on the cross where he just crushed the head of the Leviathan when he rose from the dead, if you trust in him to pay for your sin, you too will rise from the dead. Tonight we sit in the quietness of this place and tonight we are listening to this message right across the world on the internet. We're reminded that God's people will be set free by God's grace, according to Isaiah. And the wonderful reality of that is that it changes our lives. A strange thing happens when you trust in Jesus. If you're someone who is a Christian now, I want you to understand this again tonight and think about it again tonight so you can enjoy this reality. And if you're not a Christian yet, if you're still not sure, can I invite you to think about this reality? What is Isaiah talking about with this vine growing around the world? And what has that got to do with Jesus? Well, in John 15, 5, Jesus says this astonishing thing. Do you know what the vine is that's grown around the world? It is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you want to be the vine of Isaiah 27 and not the vine of Isaiah chapter 5, if you want to be a fruitful vine and accomplish much in your life, you don't have to sit around and ask the question all the time, what should I be best doing for the Lord Jesus and arguing with other Christians if they disagree? What you've got to do is a simple thing. Remain in Jesus. Just like Andrew Root said at the beginning of this sermon, if you're a Christian, you are a relational being. If you are a Christian and you remain in Jesus, you are a branch of this vine of Isaiah 27 that has grown out around the whole world. And if you are a branch, do you have to do anything to grow fruit? It grows out of you.
The wonderful thing is that when Jesus went back up into heaven after he rose from the dead, he said, don't worry, I'm not going to leave you here as orphans. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit so that you will bear much fruit. And when someone puts their faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God himself, the Holy Spirit, comes into your life. He convicts you and he encourages you and he challenges you through the word of God to continue to do good. And the good you'll do looks different every day. You can have big strategies for doing good. That's not a bad thing. But really what's happening here in John 15 is the big thing we need to do every day as Christians is abide in Jesus and be available for the Holy Spirit to produce fruit in our lives. Two things that come out, just two quick things. Galatians 2 2 verse 10 records when Paul first started his ministry when he went out to preach the gospel, the good news to, to the people who didn't know about it. And as he left, the people who sent him out said this to him. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that we were eager to do all along. One of the fruits that comes out of a Christian is that we have compassion on people who have less than we do. I don't want to make too much of Anthony and Trudy tonight because they don't want to be setting themselves up as any heroes or anything. But by Anthony just going over and doing a course over in Ethiopia, he fell in love with the people. And then he came home and he said to his wife, we should go back again. And Trudy went over and she fell in love with it as well. Why did they fall in love with Ethiopia? Because they are in the vine. They're branches, they're attached. Why do you fall in love with helping other people who need help? Because you're a Christian, if you're a Christian. And finally, in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, this is what Paul says of the Thessalonians. He said... So we cared for you, actually did what he was instructed to do. He went to Thessalonica, he found some people, he cared for them. We cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Can I end on this note? If you are in Jesus, you are relational because you are in a relationship with God because you're connected to God through Jesus. You're connected to him as the vine but you're also connected through Jesus to all the other branches as well. And the really exciting thing about coming to church or being online and being together like this is that we are connected. We preach the gospel that brings salvation and we share our lives. So I want to encourage you tonight to think about, if you're a Christian, what difference does Jesus make to your life? Preach the gospel, keep telling this story, and share your lives with other people. Care for the poor and continue to be in relationship with Jesus. If you're not a Christian here tonight and your question is, how can I follow Jesus? My answer would be, think about connecting yourself to him by trusting him what he did for you on the cross. Because if you ask him to forgive you of his sins, of your sins, then you are saved. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for making us such relational beings. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you've given us Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.